And then a quick note about your homework. This time, you are going to get a chance, if you look at the looking ahead section, you are going to have a chance to write out the gospel. You know we are talking about the gospel all the time. Today I will say the word, the gospel, many times. And so what a great opportunity for us to actually sit down with pen and paper and write it out. Not only that Jesus died for us, but all the aspects of the gospel. Be thinking about that as you think about, wow, what does that mean, the gospel? So you're going to get a chance to write that out and then to read the book of 1 Thessalonians in prep for next time. And I'd like to start in prayer. So if you join me, please. Oh, Heavenly Father, it is so good to be here again today. Thank you for giving us another day, another opportunity to learn from you, to follow you, to obey you, just to love you, to rejoice in you, to encourage one another in that. So, Lord, please help us to focus on this lesson now, just to clear our minds and to be 100% present in, um, in this morning's lesson. Um, we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, you know, every time we're together, we get to begin with review, don't we? With review of our Wellspring purpose and discipline. And, you know, we do this every time because it's just important to remember, why are we here? And um, how are we living out what we're learning in Wellspring? So we all get to benefit from review, right? We benefit personally then those in our household benefit, and then those in the church and beyond the church benefit. So with that in mind, let's turn our binders over and let's look at our Wellspring purposes and the purpose, the one purpose, and our disciplines. Would you read it with me, please? Purpose, to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God, so that they live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. Good. Discipline one, the heart. She prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. Discipline two, the home. She ministers to those in her household with her heart for God and the gospel. See, there it is again, the gospel. Discipline three, ministry. With the heart for God and the gospel and fulfilling her ministry within her household, she steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. Wow. Well, do you realize, ladies, it's been six months? Since we all got together that warm September morning, sat together for that very first lesson. And in those six months, it's safe to say a lot has happened to us, hasn't it? There have been multiple opportunities for heart shepherding. You know, in my family, there's been 
tough times physically, I'm sure in your families too, just with my aging parents and my husband's aging dad, you know, that, that brings a lot of challenges, right? And then um, Jeff's sister, Jess was diagnosed with breast cancer, and she started chemo yesterday. So that's a lot of um, tough physical challenges in our family. What about you? What about you and your family? And then emotionally, we had to, our, Jeff and I had to put down both of our chihuahuas, first Mia and then Frito, within six weeks of each other. And that was tough emotionally for us. You know, there have also been, though, some really sweet, sweet times of rejoicing. And I'm sure you're thinking of some of those, too, in your own lives, right? We've had friends who've gotten married. We've had friends who've had babies or grandkids are going to have a baby soon. We've had friends that are, have adopted children or are in the process of adopting children. We've had friends whose moms have had much-needed job changes, right? <laughs> friends who've seen God work in marvelous, marvelous ways. You know, because being in Wellspring has taught me the importance of prayerfully shepherding my heart toward God through the Word of God, and in particular, the Gospel, I am here to tell you that through the good times and the hard times, it is well with my soul. I'm here to remind you that Christ is the glue that holds all of our joyful and difficult life experiences together. And that's why we can agree with the hymn writer that when he says, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And Christian, we can shepherd our hearts to the most joyful good news found in verse 2. Oh, I love verse 2. My sin Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. Our wellspring disciplines always begin with our heart, right? And the word of God. Why? Because... Spending time in God's word every day, it lays the foundation for the rest of our day, doesn't it? And then as we go about the day and as we experience peace like a river or sorrows like sea billows, we can draw on what God has taught us through his word, right? And that's what's going to shape our thought life and our actions, and our reactions, hour by hour, minute by minute even. Now you have a quote in your notes, and it's from J.R. Packer. This is a book that my small group just finished. So some of you are in small group with me. Um, and this quote goes like this. 
Think of what you know of God through the gospel. Apply it. Think against your feelings. Argue yourself out of the gloom that they have spread. Unmask the unbelief they have nourished. Take yourself in hand. Talk to yourself. Make yourself look up from your problems to the gospel. Let evangelical thinking, see you evangelized yourself, correct what? Emotional thinking, ladies. I love that. See, that's a big part of what shepherding our hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God is all about. And that's one of the reasons why we all have a chance to write out the gospel this week. Now remember, our hearts are who we are inwardly before God. And since everything flows out of the heart, we must be constantly guarding it, right? Watching over it, correcting it. And you know, thinking about that, it reminds me of a hundred-year-old clock I got from my grandma. I love that old clock. And it's on the mantle in one of my rooms. Um, and you know, it's pretty loud, so I get to hear the soothing tick, tick, tick throughout pretty much all of my house if I really listen to it. But you know, that clock, just because it's beautiful, I still need to care for it, right? It doesn't run on its own. It needs me. It requires my daily attention. And just like my heart, that old clock needs winding every day. No days off. And just because I wind it every day faithfully, that doesn't guarantee that it's going to accurately keep time throughout the day. So I constantly have to check it out throughout the day um, because sometimes it gains time and sometimes it loses time. <laughs> I always have to check it against a trustworthy source. In this case, I got my cell phone. Um, and, you know, then I make the little adjustments necessary. And that's called calibration. Right? That word calibration, it means checking by comparison with the standard. And just like that old clock, my very own heart needs calibration, right? It needs to be calibrated or checked by comparison against a standard. And you all know what that standard is, right? You have it open on your desk, on the table. It's the Word of God. Not only do we need to wind our hearts with the Word of God daily, we need to shepherd our hearts all throughout the day with the word of God. And you know why? To ensure that our thoughts and attitudes are aligned with the only true standard. I don't know about you, but boy, oh boy, do I ever need heart calibration every time I listen to what's going on in the world out there. Terrorism. ISIS, abortion, pornography, persecution of Christians, global unrest, the threat of nuclear war several from several places, the Zika virus, and you know in our own country, gay marriage, upcoming presidential election, the vacancy on the Supreme Court, physician-assisted suicide in California, just to name a few. You know, calibrating my own heart will help me remember that even though, yes, I am a great sinner, and I live in a very 
fallen world. I can trust him in the pain, and I can trust him with the pain, can't I? That I or someone I love are experiencing. I can rejoice, I can, that suffering and pain do not defeat me. They don't. Because God is eternal. He does not change. He rules the world. He exercises judgment with perfect authority, doesn't he? And you know, feasting on the word of God and worshiping him, that can calibrate my heart to the eternal truths that are found there. And that's what gives me a godly perspective on life and eternity. I want you to listen to how Paul describes it in Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Tina, could you go get me a Kleenex, please? Um, um, and you have the reference on the outline. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on <coughs> earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden in Christ with God. Verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. Thank you. What a privilege it is to remind myself, those and those in my household and those in the church with these truths. We need to remind ourselves what? Look up. Look up. Set our minds on things above, not on things that are on the earth, you know, especially when things on the earth seem to be going in a death spiral. Set your minds on things above. So do you have a friend? Do you have a family member? Maybe even you? Who's sinking under the burden of his or her present situation? Sometimes it can feel like we're drowning, can it? under the weight of the world. That's why we need each other. I need you. You need me. We need to shepherd each other toward God and the gospel. Disciplines two. Discipline three. It all begins with discipline one. Prayerfully shepherding our heart toward God, with the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. Now, you received a really helpful handout today, and this is an example of how the Wellspring Disciplines might shape your prayerful approach to God through his word. So what Jeff and I have done is I've tucked this away. I got it a little early, um, and I tucked it away in my Bible. And then what we do is we just read a paragraph every day because it's so weighty and so meaty, and that's really helpful. Um, so I hope you tuck it away in your Bible, too. But let's look at the very last paragraph. So do you see it? It's called an example of how the Wellspring Disciplines can shape your prayerful approach to the Word of God. Do you have that? To God through His Word. Okay. Third page. Thank you. Third page. Page three. No? Page three. So let's look at the the last paragraph, and it says, I desire my heart and mind to be full of you because of what these pages reveal to me about you. I long for you to spill out of me into my home and wherever you lead me today. 
all who come in contact with me today must interact with a woman whose heart has drawn near to you. Their best hope for salvation or for the growth in or for growth in the gospel will come from one who has searched for you in your word and gazed upon your son in the gospel. Wow, I love that. And so we're going to look at this again today. And then please don't just stick it in your notebook, okay? Refer to it often. Well, we're going to start the lesson part now. We're going to start with some history. The night of April 14th, 1912, was the third day of Titanic's maiden voyage. It was numbingly cold. The water's temperature hovered around 28 degrees Fahrenheit, so you can imagine, maybe. Around noon that day, Titanic's wireless operators received the first of four cautionary messages about large ice flows just ahead. The second message came at 5.35 p.m. from a ship that responded and that reported three icebergs just 19 miles north of Titanic's path. And just one hour before Titanic's collision at 11.40 p.m., a vessel named the Californian messaged Titanic, we're stopped and we're surrounded by ice. Now, some of you may remember what the message was, right? It wasn't, thank you very much. Bless you. Now, the threat of ice was brushed off. As a matter of fact, one of the sources said that the response was, shut up, I'm busy. And just what was the operator busy with? Why did that operator discount the danger? (coughs) We'll find out in a minute. Captain (coughs) Smith, the captain, he was also unconcerned. You know, he thought, we've heard it, Titanic. I mean, come on. She's solid steel. She was unsinkable. So you know what their only concern was? Shattering a speed record set by the other steamers. Frederick Fleet, perfect name, isn't it, for a guy on a ship. He was in the observation port, and he was nearing the end of his ship, his shift, and then he saw that iceberg. And he, okay, he did everything he could do real quick. He sounded the alarm. He called down to the bridge. Okay, then everybody gets into action. First Officer William J. M. Murdoch shut off all the engines. He dropped the watertight doors. He turned the ship away from the forward front end so that the iceberg hit on the side. Uh, Unfortunately, even though he reacted as well as he could, you know what, there just wasn't enough time to make a complete stop. Um, And so stopping the ship, that would have required over 2,600 feet, and they only had 900 feet before they, they hit that thing. And, uh, you know, for a few minutes, though, it seemed as if the maneuver might have worked. From the surface, the ship looked as if it had averted that iceberg. But what was happening underneath? Underneath, a protruding fragment of ice ripped a hole in Titanic's hull. And the hole, ladies, was nearly 300 
feet wide. And sadly, tragically, Murdoch's hasty navigation actually from taking and hit direct impact to trying to miss it and hitting the side, that was even worse than if he would have hit it dead, um, straight on. He even took it from the sturdiest place to withstand impact to the most vulnerable place, causing catastrophic results. And you all know what happened. In an hour and a half, the giant's ship would slip to the murky bottom of the Atlantic. <clears throat> Just what is it, ladies, about icebergs that makes them so dangerous? You know? Is it the part you can see? Or is it the part you can't see? You all know the answer to that, right? It's what you don't see that's the problem. And typically, only one-tenth of the iceberg is what you see. So that means that nine-tenths is what you don't see. And the trouble is you just don't know how wide that iceberg is, how many layers it has, right? So it's difficult to know. And so that's why the expression comes, the tip of the iceberg, because it's, it's a manifestation of a much larger problem. And so, sisters, that's exactly what the rest of this lesson is about today. Today, we're going to learn how we must not ignore the tip of the iceberg in our own lives. For we will learn that the tip of the iceberg, we're going to learn how identifying the tip of the iceberg can help us identify dangerous elements that are lurking underneath the surface so that we can steer ourselves away from them to Christ. So this morning we're going to look specifically at what the Word of God has to say about a prideful heart. And we're going to learn to identify the danger to which pride exposes our heart. How pride can damage us and damage those around us, even people we love dearly. Just like that iceberg damaged the Titanic. And then we're going to end the lesson with some hope. Yay, the hope of the gospel. Because the gospel is the safest and the sturdiest place, ladies, to steer our hearts to in order for us to withstand those life's impacts and the danger of pride. So let me ask you, do you think of yourself as a prideful person? You know, at first glance, that's that's not usually what I think of myself, although after sitting in this lesson all week, yeah, I have to say I'm very aware of it. I know I am prideful. I know. It's just not really one of the first things I think of when I think of myself. So how good are you at spotting pride? Can you identify it when you see it? You know, even as we begin this lesson, I'm sure... You're forming in your mind an idea of what pride looks like, right? That's because we see pride, don't we, all the time in others. As a matter of fact, it's a lot easier to spot pride in others than in ourselves. You know, and that's another thing about pride. It's a lot easier even to identify than it is to define it really is. That's because, you know what? We are experts at defining sin. 
in terms of others. We are, in terms that carefully exclude ourselves. That's why in Wellspring, we are always reviewing the condition of our own hearts. Always. Because we need to remember our hearts are prone to deceive and to being deceived. Now, here's the dilemma. Here it is. We know we have to watch out for that wrong kind of thinking. We know that. But just because we've been warned, it doesn't mean we're always going to heed the warnings. We need to know that about ourselves, just like the operator on the Titanic. I know we all, we all, we all want to avert that kind of wrong thinking, right? So let's do everything we can. Let's do everything we can to listen to the lesson and to apply what we learn, just to walk out the door ready to apply what we learned today. So we can take this lesson to heart and not be tempted as you sit there to think, oh man, I wish my friend were here to hear this. So this morning, I stand to here to tell you, all of us, me included, we need to know God is very vocal. He's very concerned about pride. Oh my goodness, in our hearts. So let's find out. Let's take a little peek at what God's concerned with. We're on number two on your outline, the danger to which pride exposes the heart. So on your outline, you're going to see many um, Bible verses, but we're not just going to be reading the Bible verses together this morning. We're going to be hamming it up, okay? So here's what I mean. Because uh, pride is a lot easier to see in others than in ourselves, after each verse, there is a ham application. Ham, H-A-M, how about me? Okay, that's what it stands for, how about me? Because we do want to be able to think about how can I apply this to myself instead of somebody else that I know. So ready to begin? We're going to begin in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 17. So let's turn there, and as you're turning there, I'll remind you that this is Moses giving instruction to Israel, because someday they are going to have a king. Okay, so let's find out what's what we need to know, what they need to know when they have a king. Verse eighteen. Let's start there. I know it. Sh- uh, I'm sorry. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life. Now I want you to remember that part. Tuck that part away, because we're going to refer to that part later. That he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes. Verse 20. So that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left so that his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. All right, let's review. What is he to do? The king is to write a copy of the law for himself, right? In the presence of the Levitical priests. So he's to write a copy and he's to keep it. And he's to read it all the days of his life. 
Why? And this is important. So that he will learn to fear the Lord through obedience. And what's the benefit? Here it is. Because there's one thing that will prevent him from lifting his heart above others in arrogance and in pride and from thinking, I'm better than all the rest of you. Do you know what that one thing is? The word of God. That's it. He needs the word of God. And where does he need it? He needs it close to his heart. Why? So that he doesn't exempt himself from the standard that everybody else has to live by. He needs to remember he has to live by that exact same standard. The king, okay, the great king of Israel, he was to be on the same level ground as everybody else. And what does the leveling? God's law, God's word, right? God's revelation of himself. Let's not miss this. It's the word of God that will prevent him from lifting his heart high above the others. All right, we ready for some ham? How about me? Here's our first application. Do I realize that I will exalt myself without a steady diet of God's word? Do I realize that I will start thinking that somebody else needs God's word more than I do? Sisters, without a steady diet of God's word, you know what? I could start telling myself things like, okay, and this is the, the log in my own eye because this is so true. I've thought all these things. She needs, oh boy, she needs small group. Man, he needs church. My friend really should go online and listen to Sunday's sermon again. She should memorize that Bible verse. Boy, those, those guys need to serve. That person over there, they need the word of God much more even than I need it right now. Somebody else. Somebody else. Somebody else. Without a steady diet of God's word, we might have the tendency to exempt ourselves as if, you know what? There's some kind of exemption clause for us. Do we realize that the one thing that prevents us from lifting our heart above others is the word of God? And so we must continually expose ourselves to God's word at a heart level. Discipline one. Don't miss it. God's word must penetrate our hearts. The great leveler, ladies, for us all, is the word of God. Bless you. Well, let's go to Proverbs 16 on the next page. This is Proverbs 16, 5, and we're going to see what Solomon, Israel's third king, proclaimed about the heart. Proverbs 
16.5 says, Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not go unpunished. Here it is, friends. God's sure and certain response to pride. In Proverbs 16.5, Solomon is revealing to his son, the heir to the throne, what God thinks about arrogance. Everyone who is whose heart is proud is actually an abomination to the Lord. So let's linger for a minute. Let's stop and think about that word abomination. You know, it's not a word we use a lot. And I don't know, I don't go around using that word a lot. But it's in the Bible, especially Proverbs. So we want to make sure um, that we know it. You know, some of the synonyms of abomination, atrocity, repugnant, disgraceful, loathsome, disgusting. Atrocity, repugnant, disgraceful, loathsome, disgusting. So thinking of this, now let's revisit 16.5. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not go unpunished. Okay, you can't state God's disapproval and reaction to arrogance more, more strongly than that, could you? His response, it's not uncertain, it's not unclear, it's not wishy-washy. Assuredly, they will not go unpunished. And having just come off Good Friday and Easter, I'm sure you're thinking where I'm thinking, right? Because this is so weighty. This means that as Christians, God's son was punished by the Father for our arrogance. Christ willingly, willingly became an abomination, a disgrace loathsome, disgusting, repugnant to God because of our arrogance. Thank you, Lord. How about me? Do I preach the gospel realities to my heart? Do I preach this to my heart and let them turn me away from arrogance to which Christ suffered and died? I must. And I must do it often. Let's go on to um, number three next on your outline, Hosea. Hosea 13. So if you find Daniel, then you'll find Hosea. And we're going to read a very clear statement from God about the way he saw himself with Israel at the time of Exodus and the wilderness wanderings. Hosea 13, 4 through 6. Yet I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt, and you were not to know any God except me, for there is no Savior besides me. I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But now in verse 6, we see the step-by-step descent in morals and in worship. Look at this. As they had their pasture, they became satisfied. And being satisfied, their heart became proud. 
and they forgot me. Ooh. And do you remember he even warned them about that in Deuteronomy 8, 11 through 20? Remember we saw that in the survey of the home lesson. And real quick, let's turn to it. Deuteronomy 8, 11 through 20. And, but we're going to stop at verse 17. I'm going to start reading for time. Um, you can turn there if you want. Deuteronomy 8, 11. Um, Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, yikes, look what's going to happen. Then your heart will become proud. And the next one, what's going to happen? You'll forget the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water and he brought water for you from the rock of flint. In the wilderness he fed you manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise, here it is. You may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. Verse 18, but you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Look at verse 19, has that word forget in it again. It shall come if you ever forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you today that you will surely perish. Okay, we're going to stop there. See, now we're learning that the root of forgetfulness, the root of forgetfulness is pride. So how about me? Do I see how dangerous a prideful heart is? You know, why exactly is a prideful heart so dangerous? Here it is in a nutshell. A prideful heart, and it's so simple, but it's something, you know, you just have to teach yourself. A prideful heart is dangerous because it leads to forgetfulness. But here it is, too. Not just any kind of forgetfulness, right? Are, are we ever going to forget about ourselves? Ever? No. A prideful heart leads to divine forgetfulness. Yikes. We forget God. It's in verse 19. We forget God. None of us is exempt from that. See, there's danger inherent in satisfaction. <coughs> we all know this. With being comfortable, with having God's provision, with being satisfied, there's danger in that. So watch out. You have to watch out for your heart at that moment because that's when your heart becomes proud and that's when your heart forgets God. And please, 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 don't be fooled into thinking, oh, 
You know, I've said this to myself. Oh, you know what? No, that will never happen to me. I, 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 I'll always be so thankful. I'll just enjoy all the good things. And, you know, we have to watch out because God says it will happen to us. You know, none of us is exempt. None of us is exempt from forgetting God. There is never a day that we have to watch out for it. Just put it on your calendar, okay? How about you? How about me? You know, we'll all agree, yeah. When things are great, relationships in a family are going great, our finances are great, our health is great. Well, that's that's easy to um, just be so thankful, you know, but let's not see that that's, let's not miss that that's when we need to remember that's also when we might forget God. We need to be just as intentional as seeking God like you know we all do when things are tough. We need to be just as intentional with seeking him when things are going very comfortably for us. And that's what we've been talking all along, bringing your heart to the word of God. He's the one who keeps us mindful. The word of God does, keeps us mindful of our constant, ongoing need of him. He does this every time you open that word. So in Hosea 13 and in Deuteronomy 8, we saw one way that pride shows up in our lives. We forget God. Of course, we don't like to call it that, do we? You know, we uh, we certainly don't forget God, right? Um, before you know it, we might be cleaning it up a bit. So instead of saying, I forget God, I might just use <coughs> busy, busyness as an excuse. It sounds a little cleaner <laughs> than forgetting God. It sounds less offensive. I might say, I just have no time for meeting with God in his word. Now, when we say that, do we call it pride? We should, because that's exactly what it is, no matter what you call it. You know, it's easy for us to tell each other, oh, you should have seen my calendar. I mean, it's true. Our calendars get very full, and we do have hard weeks. But if that's what we use for an excuse for not meeting God with his word consistently, ladies, that's pride. I don't know about you, but I've never heard anyone confess to me, and I've never confessed to them, friend, I struggled with arrogant pride this week, and that's why I neglected time in the word. I've never heard anyone say that. But that's really actually what it is. I want you to hear me. Busyness is not the sin, okay? It's not. We all lead very busy lives. But it's using busyness as the excuse for neglecting time in the Word. See, it doesn't mean that it's not challenging. We all have varying obstacles. We do for getting in the Word. But listen. I'll say it again. When we use busyness as an excuse, what we really are is prideful. And this is what really helped me to understand this. Because what I'm really, really saying to God when I strip it all away 
is I'm saying, this sounds so awful, but it's true. I'm saying, God, I know better than you what my heart needs today. That's what you're saying. Now I want you to think about that tip of that iceberg again. You see only a small fraction of it under sticking out. But you know one thing, right? A large percentage of it is lurking under the surface. And the part you can't see is even more dangerous than the part you can. Because you know what? You don't know exactly how wide it goes. You don't know how many layers it has. You just don't know. So, if we understand that all this that you can't see is sustaining and supporting the part you can see, that'll motivate us to take a breath and get down there and try to find out all these faces of pride. See, there are a lot of depths and layers to it. So we have to be ready to stop, take that breath, dive under the surface, and identify the real thing. You know, because if we do, that's going to help us to eliminate and get rid of a lot of problems in our lives. So let's recap this to make sure everyone knows what I'm talking about. Because if I can understand this one principle in this one area, it's going to help us root out pride when it manifests itself in other areas. So let's talk about the case of the woman who's neglecting her time in the Word. Okay, we know the tip of the iceberg, the visible sin, remember, it's not being busy, but it's using busy as an excuse, right? That's the tip. It's using busy as an excuse for not spending time in the Word. Another way to say it is failing to prioritize time in the Word, or you could say intentionally, failing to intentionally neglect other things. So let's dive a little deeper under the surface and see another layer of sin. So here it is. That woman is forgetting God. Let's dive a little deeper to see what the root is. It's pride. That's the root of all that sin. Because in essence, that woman is operating from a belief that she knows better than God what she needs to be doing with her time, with her priorities, and with her heart. That woman does not truly believe that what's in her best interest is feasting on God's word. She's foolish. She thinks she can run life on her own. I don't really need God today. I'll do that tomorrow. All right, that's what she's thinking. It's okay. If I skip one day, I'll be fine. So, friend, you have to steer yourself away from that kind of thinking. It's dangerous. So, In my life, when I'm tempted to do that, I have to say to myself, you know what? No, to all those things on my to-do list, what my heart needs more than anything today, more than anything, 
is to meet with my God in his word. That's what I have to tell him. So you and I might not always recognize what is dangerously lurking under that visible sin. It's pride. So now we're going to look at some of the faces of pride so that we can better understand how to battle sin. So let's turn to Second Chronicles 26. And we are going to read about a king named Uzziah. And we're going to begin in verse 1, and then we're going to jump around a bit. So verse, uh, so Second Chronicles 26, verse 1. And all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king. And then verse 4 says, He did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He continued to seek God in the days of Zechariah who had understanding through the vision of God, and as long as he sought the Lord, God prospered him. Now, those verses 6 through 15, they describe all kinds of victories and achievements he had. And then verse 7, it tells us why he was victorious. So look at verse 7. It says, God helped him. And then jump to verse 15b. It says, hence, his fame spread afar, for he was marvelously helped. Okay, who helped him? Remember verse 7? God, right? God helped him until he was strong. He was marvelously helped by God. But then, what happened? He became strong? Look at verse 16. And his heart was so proud. Remember, pride is from the overflow of your heart. It's the same danger we saw in Deuteronomy 8 and Hosea 13. Success is very dangerous to our hearts. His heart was proud, so proud. What did he do? He acted corruptly. He was unfaithful to the Lord. So how was he unfaithful? Let's find out. He entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense and on the altar of incense. Okay, so you might be asking yourself, okay, he's unfaithful, but he's burning incense. Isn't burning incense worshiping, and so isn't that showing faithfulness? I mean, I don't get it. And doing things like I'm just doing right now, asking yourself questions, that's all good stuff. It shows you're really concentrating on what you're reading. But here's the good news. The answer is usually just a few verses, you know, next. So just keep on reading. Uh, So let's keep on reading. Verse 17. Then Azariah the priest entered after him, and with him 80 priests of the Lord, and these aren't wimps, ladies, valiant men. Can you picture that? (laughs) And they opposed Uzziah the king and said to him, and here it is. Here's we're going to see exactly why his actions were prideful. It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests the sons of Aaron who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful and you will have no honor from the Lord God. So why was he unfaithful? Because, here it goes, he overstepped the boundaries of authority that God had established. He overstepped the boundaries of authority. Remember, I said, when we way back in Deuteronomy 17, 
way back before they had a king, it was firmly established. Okay, the king is supposed to have a copy of the law. He's supposed to write it. He's supposed to read it every day. So if he would have paid attention to that, he should have known service in the temple was reserved for whom? That's right, for the priests, the descendants of Aaron, not him. And you know, one place, just one of the many places that's clearly stated is Numbers 16:40. It says, and re, as a reminder to the sons of Israel that no layman who is not the descendants of Aaron should come near to burn incense before the Lord. You see, Uzziah, he was king, but he wasn't qualified to do that. It wasn't his to take. And then he acted out of angry pride when his sin was called out. So how about me? You know, think about this. Ask yourself, am I ever tempted to grasp authority which hasn't been given to me? Now think about it. Are you ever tempted to just kind of work around your boss? To work around your parents? Your husband? Guilty. You know, thinking, I'll just do it. And then ask for forgiveness later, you know, instead of permission. We've all heard somebody say that. You know, we just assume that it would be okay for us deciding for ourselves instead of humbling ourselves and thinking, here it is. Here's what we should be thinking. What would honor God in this situation? That's going to help us do the right thing. And then you go to your husband, your boss, your teacher, your parent, your elders, small group leaders, you ask for their leadership, ask for their permission, ask for their guidance. You know, it could be that Uzziah thought he was entitled because, after all, he was king. And you know what? The Lord, we read it, the Lord hadn't withheld any other privilege. So, you know, why shouldn't he take lead in that worship? But, you know, that wasn't his to take, was it? He wasn't entitled. So we're still hamming it up. Should Do I ever do that? You know, it is so easy for us to have a sense of entitlement. We did a whole lesson on that. Remember, Anne and the spirals? You know, we all are tempted to think we need some appreciation or some respect. So here's what helps me see it. How I react right here in my heart when I'm treated the way I don't want to be treated. You know, when I experience a lack of thoughtfulness from people I live with or anybody else. How I react right here when somebody's rude. It could display in thinking when my husband walks in the door. Oh, man, I've been with these kids all day. Your turn. I'm entitled to some downtime or, you know, it's Friday night. I've worked hard all week. I just want to relax. Don't, I don't want to see anybody. I just want to relax. Or, you know, it's Tuesday and I'm still recovering from that weekend. So I really don't want to go to small group today. You know, we all have a culture that says, I deserve. And you fill in the blanks, right? Remember? Those, that lesson, that's a good one to pull out again, shepherding my heart throughout the day. So when we become frustrated, you could write any of these up, up there on the tip of the iceberg, or discouraged, or in despair, or without peace, we're doing so 
because we're allowing those desires, and those are all desires that we have. It's okay to have a desire that your children obey you. That's okay. But we're allowing those desires to become objects we think we deserve. And finally, we begin demanding them. See, so it's important to realize these symptoms are just the tip of the iceberg. These are all evidences of what is lurking underneath. Evidences of pride. And because we think what we want is more important than what God wants, that's what we're doing. And what does God want us to do? Die to self, follow Christ. So anytime we put ourselves first, that's pride. How could this be the same with fear? That's something I had struggled with, still do sometimes. So if you have fear, how could that be pride? Ever thought of that? Here's what we're telling God in essence. God, you are not big enough to handle this situation. See, that's prideful, isn't it? You're beginning to see how this applies to so many areas in your life. How pride is just lurking under the surface. So to help us identify pride... In our lives, we have a handout, another wonderful one. And this is called 41 Evidences of Pride. And you're going to get to look at this at home and even do some of it, write some of them on your homework. Now, number one is pretty obvious, number one. Do you look down on those who are less educated, less affluent, less refined, or less successful than yourself? Okay, that's pretty obvious. That's a... And, uh, an evidence of pride, but some of these others are not so um, evident at first blush. So let me point you to some of them. How about on this, the next page, page 50, or number 15? Do you have a hard time sharing your real spiritual needs and struggles with others? Did you ever think that that was pride? Or how about number 18? Do you have a hard time reaching out and being friendly to people you don't know at church? I would think that's being shy. No? That's prideful. What about number 20? Do you become defensive when you're criticized or corrected? Yikes. How about 23? I'm trying to work on this one. Do you frequently interrupt people when you're speaking? Or even 26, do you complain about the weather, your health, your circumstances, your job? Do you see any? Real quick, we could shout out. I'll take about three or four. Who's laughing? Anybody see one? <laughs> Which one are you laughing at, Becky? 
All right, take some time to look at that. How about number 41, ladies? Are you sitting here thinking how many of these questions apply to someone else you know? <laughs> Feeling pretty good that none of these really apply to you. Isn't that hysterical? Ouch, okay, so now all of a sudden we're the, what, the poster child for arrogant pride, right? Yeah. Um, these are all things we struggle with, just like Uzziah did. All right, so we're going to go back to page two in the outline. Um, ladies, I, just for the sake of time, I know we're supposed to take a break. I'm going to just keep going if that's all right with you, and then hopefully give us more time in the end with your small group or your discussion groups. So if you need to get up and refill, please do that. We're going to just keep on going. Um, so I want to finish up on the bottom of page two and finish up with that second Chronicles passage because here's the important thing to see, that this passage that we're in shows how one sin easily leads to another kind of sin. Lori, could you just keep that door open now? I think it'll be fine. Pride in the heart can lead us to having a sense of entitlement, just as in the case of Uzziah, <coughs> which may have us overstepping our authority, and that's a bad thing. Okay, I've done bad thing, bad thing, bad thing, right? It's time for some good news. Because I want to encourage us, because where you are fighting sin, ladies, if you can get to the root if you can go after the right sin, you might actually make ground in your battle with some other sins. Isn't that good news? So just because one sin is often tied to another, you know, they bring their friends along. How about we bring a friend along? Every We're all prideful anyway. We're all sinners anyway. Let's bring a friend along, and let's agree to help each other, shall we? Just bear it all. And you can say, you know, friend, I need, I'm too prideful. I need you to help me see the sin behind the sin, to see what's lurking underneath the surface. There's a friend in here that we've been able to do that with each other, with fear especially, that we can see that that is pride. So now let's move on to number three. I'm sorry, page three on our outline. And let's look at another king. This time, Hezekiah. And we're going to be in 2 Chronicles 32. Verse 24. In those days, Hezekiah became mortally ill. And he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to him. And gave him, now the NIV says he gave him a miraculous sign. But Hezekiah, he gave no return for the benefit he received. The NIV again says he did not respond to the kindness shown him because his heart was proud. So here we see another face of pride not responding to God's kindness.
just exempting myself because I thought, oh, every time God shows kindness, I respond. Well, we're going to dig a little deeper because let's do a, a ham question right now. How might I fail to respond to God's kindness? Okay, so here it is. I'm so happy that I've been able to learn this. I want you to turn with me to Romans 2, 4. Because that's on your that's on your notes, Romans 2, 4. Romans 2, 4 says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads to repentance? The kindness of God leads to what? Repentance. Isn't that cool? So, are you quick to repent? Are you? Do you hate admitting sin? Do you ask for forgiveness when you've sinned against someone? Or maybe when your sin has, a, has affected someone else in some way? Or do you take the easy way out? Do you ignore it? Thinking, again, you guys are getting a glimpse into my heart, things I've said to myself. Thinking, hey, well, quite a bit of time has passed and he doesn't seem too upset with me. So I don't think I need to bring that up now. Why don't I just move on? Get on with life. Let's move on. I've thought that. See, behaving in this way, it's not as simple as, oh, I'm just, I hate uncomfortable situations. I don't want to rock the boat. I just want to ignore I just want to avoid that uncomfortable situation. You know what? That's not asking for forgiveness. And that, dig deep, 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 deep. What is that? That's pride. It's failure to repent. It's really failure to respond to God's kindness. Because our verse tells us that... God's kindness leads to repentance. That's a big aha for me. See, at the root, it's a proud heart. And look at the consequences of pride at the end of 2 um, Chronicles. We were there a minute ago, so let's turn back. 2 Chronicles 32.25. It says, Therefore, Wrath came on him and on Judah and on Jerusalem. Yikes, see Hezekiah's prideful heart. It didn't just affect him, it affected everyone, just like the captain of the Titanic. Remember, he arrogantly dismissed the warnings. And look at the impact that his actions had on over 1,500 people and their families who weren't on the ship. Okay, Ham, how about me? Do I recognize the impact my pride has on others? How might others experience the consequences from my sin? But you know what? There's encouragement here, and it's to be found in verse 26. However, what did Hezekiah do? He humbled, you see it? He humbled the pride of his heart. 
See, Hezekiah did it, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come on them in the days of Hezekiah. Isn't that encouraging? God was willing to turn back from his wrath in the face of repentance. And the hope for us believers who live after the cross is that Christ bore the righteous wrath against our pride and he gives us a new heart so that we even can repent of pride. Wow, thank you, Lord. So as a recap, we've been learning how to identify pride as the root or the base of the iceberg by noticing some of the ways it manifests itself at the tip of the iceberg. Remember some of the ways I only wrote a few of them down. But um, see, if we can try, if we realize that pride tries to get its foot in the door of our hearts by tempting us to, okay, we, could, we wrote, um, forget God, not staying within our authority, entitlement, even laziness, not responding to God's kindness, not repenting to sin, complaining, discontentment. Wow, if we see that all that is an evidence of pride, that'll help us. So now we're going to see something just as serious, and we're going to move on to Obadiah. So Obadiah, it's not a book we read, probably just read once a year in our reading plan. It's four books after Daniel. So again, find that big book, Daniel, then it's Hosea, Joel, Amos, and Obadiah. And both Obadiah... And Jeremiah, you have the Jeremiah reference there. They're addressing the Edomites. Remember Edom? Remember they're the descendants of Jacob's brother Esau? And they're an enemy of Israel. They caused special bitterness. One of the things they did was they assisted Babylon against Judah. You know, they are arrogant, these people. And they thought they were invincible. And one of the reasons they thought that they were invincible was they had this imposing, impregnable capital city. It's called Petra. You may have heard of it. Petra was situated high, high up in the mountains. And I want you to imagine it. Deep, deep, terrifying gorges emanating from its peaks that reached almost 6,000 feet. And they surrounded her, so she was like a fortress. And that generated a false sense of security. And in my research, I found this quote. It says, from their home within this natural mountain fortress, the Edomites were free to wage war however and whenever they wished. And yet, despite Edom's seemingly impregnable defenses and military alliances, Edom was brought to nothing and it was abandoned. Let's read what God says to the Edomites, okay? We're in Obadiah 1, verse 2. Behold, I will make you small among nations. You are greatly despised. Look at verse 3. The arrogance of your heart has, what? That's right, deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock and the loftiness of your dwelling places, who say in your heart, who, who will bring me down? Okay, so what caused the deception? It was the arrogance, verse 3, the arrogance of their heart. See, Edom's question, who will bring me down? It's going to be answered. Take a look at verse 4. 
God's solemn resolve, hey, I will bring you down. You don't need to turn there, but Jeremiah 49.16, it's on your outline there. It says, um, God says, as for the terror of you, the arrogance of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock. Hmm. Ladies, we must remember, we must remember the heart is easily deceived, and it is the most excellent of deceivers, isn't it? And now, to add to our difficulties, we also have pride deceiving our hearts. Look at how deceived the Edomites were. God is saying he's going to bring them down. And yet, what did they persist in? Self-confidence. Self-reliance. Here we see the proof of an arrogant heart, of a deceived heart, in believing your own opinion over God's words. Sound familiar? Isn't that what the world does today? Think back to Genesis 3. How did the serpent deceive Eve? Wasn't he questioning God's word? He put doubt there. Did God indeed say that? Did God really say that? Isn't that what today's culture is screaming at us? Did God really say that about marriage? Did God really say that about you fill in the blank? That's why we must, we must know God through not what we think about God, who he is, but his word, how he reveals himself. We must always check against the standard to make sure we're thinking right. Time for some ham. Look at the next how about me question. In what ways do I trust my own opinions? You've got to be watching out for that. And my own experiences instead of God's word. Ladies, it's tempting to do it. Trusting our own opinions, that's all we did before Christ. Trusting our own opinions is prideful. Now, if you think about the world which we live in, how much the world loves to mock God. Trusting in psychology, self-help, evolution, man's ability to solve its problems. That's what the Edomites did, and here's what God said. He was going to make them small. <laughs> here's what they said. Nobody's going to bring us down. They didn't believe God. You see the danger that a prideful heart is? So we got to stop. Examine just how much of the world's philosophy are we allowing to creep in. We must remember that deceptiveness of pride is especially hard to battle with because the nature of deception is it's deceptive. That's its nature. You just can't see it, right? The only way to battle a foe you can't see is with truth. That's the only way. Truth of God's word. See, there's protection in shepherding our heart. With God's word, there's protection there. And with being concerned with helping when another shepherd her heart with God's word. Remember, above all else, guard your heart. Proverbs 4.23. So you know what? In order to battle pride, we can pray, Lord, oh Lord, show me where I tend to be arrogant. Show me where I'm prone to a sense of entitlement. And God, give me the eyes to see it. 
His kindness, ladies, will lead us to repentance. See, it's easy to see other people's pride. Remember that. But it's not so easy to see our own pride because the effect of sin is that it blinds us to our own pride and makes us see it in everybody else's and makes us judgmental. So, you know what? In order to help us with that prayer, we already read uh, the last paragraph from this page, an example of how the Wellspring Disciplines might um, prayerfully, might shape your prayerful approach to God. I want to refer to this again. I want you to this time to look at paragraph three. And paragraph three says, I also have your word open before me because I need to learn more of the nature of my sin and fallenness before you so that I might better understand what danger I truly was in and and what dangers still lurk within me so that I might see the sin that provoked your righteous wrath toward your son and your grace that moved you to act as Savior toward me in him. Wow. So there's some good news. Because just as there are evidences of pride, ladies, there's, there are many evidences of the opposite of pride that we can look for, long for, strive for, and be encouraged by. And that's humility, right? Humility. Let's take a look at what God says in his word about cultivating humility. And so now we're on number three. We're almost done. Cultivating humility. So how can we define humility? You have two impactful quotes. The first one is from A.W. Tozer. The meek man is not a human mouse afflicted with a sense of his own inferiority. That's not a meek man. Here's what it is. He has accepted God's estimate of his own life in himself, nothing, but in God, everything. He knows well that the world will never, so don't even try, the world will never see him (coughs) as God sees him. And here's the pot of gold. Look, he stopped caring. Great. Look at the second one, William Law. Humility is nothing else but a right judgment of ourselves. Let's look at 1 Peter 5, 5 through 7. Now you looked at this verse as part of your homework. 1 Peter 5, 5 through 7. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, all of you. Clothe yourself with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Isn't that interesting? He said, all of you clothe yourselves in humility toward one another. You know, humility is something we get to live out in our relationships. You know, you get to be humble when you're around other people. All by ourselves on that island we sometimes want to go to, you don't need to be humble. But God put us around others. So we get to practice it. There are a lot of ways other people humble us, right? (laughs) You know, like when we're criticized or rebuked or admonished. No one likes these things. I don't like them. You don't like them. But they can be God's gifts. Ever think of it like that to us? To 
help expose our need for humility. You know, it's so easy to feel hurt, misunderstood, defensive. We, we can go there in, in a flash, can't we? That's just like our natural way. But that's pride. That is. Why? Because we're saying feeling good about ourselves is more important than seeing areas where we need to grow. See? That's pride. Let's continue the passage. Verse 6. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you. Isn't that great to be exalted by God? That he may exalt you at the proper time. See, I'm so glad that Peter shows us how to humble ourselves because otherwise I'd be going, okay, humble ourselves, humble. How can I be doing that? Well, again, read on. Verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He calls us to humble ourselves by accepting his care for us. Isn't that cool? You know what pride does, ladies? Pride rejects his care. Don't want it. So when we're proud, we've lost sight of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have. We've lost sight of our dependence on him. But, good news, when we're humble, we find strength in God's all-sufficient grace. You have a quote um, by C.J. Mahaney. Where there's worry, where there's anxiousness, pride is at the root. And listen closely here. When I'm experiencing anxiety, the root issue is that I'm trying to be self-sufficient. I'm acting independent of God. The solution, ladies, is to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. When we need to humble ourselves before somebody, and it's hard, you know, when you need to confess sin or when you're criticized, this has been so helpful to me. Look beyond the person. Look <coughs> Look right past them. Look to your mighty God. He cares for you. He's the one you're humbling yourself to. He's the one who's at work for your good. And so that leads us to having an accurate view of ourselves and our Savior. We're going to close with Colossians 3.12. Because not only will a humble heart draw us to our Savior, it also draws us to one another. I love this. Colossians 3.12-14. So... As those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved. Again, we've been learning this from Titus. Paul starts with our gospel identity, who we are in Christ, right? And then he says what to do. Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, you also should. Beyond these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. You know, when people look at us, ladies, and they see our love for each other, they go, that's not normal. They love each other. Wow. Humility, ladies, grows out of a heart 
that cherishes the gospel. That's where humility grows out of a heart. You have one last quote there. Preaching, and this is from the gospel primer that Sarah had mentioned before. A great book. Preaching the gospel to myself each day mounts a powerful assault against my pride and serves to establish humility in its place. Nothing suffocates pride more than daily reminders regarding the glory of my, of my God, the gravity of my sins, and the crucifixion of God's own Son in my place. Also, the gracious love of God lavished on me because of Christ's death is always humbling to remember, especially when viewed against the backdrop of the hell I deserve. Remember that quote from Anne and Tom. I deserve hell. Anything else is a good day. What a great quote. So let's close in prayer, shall we? And then go to our groups. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we are not our own. We are your slaves. You have entrusted us with the greatest treasure. Wow. The treasure of Christ's finished work on the cross to pay for our sins so that, Lord, we can walk in newness of life. And, Lord, we can live in such a way that the world looks at us and sees our love for one another and we're serving one another. That's what we want to be joyful, humble, loving in our church, in our lives, at home, in our own private thoughts. We want to adorn the gospel and put Christ on display. Lord, I declare its power to make us what we never could be apart from Christ. Lord, we desperately need you to help us battle pride. But we thank you, Lord, that you've given us a way to see it. And we thank you in your son's precious name. Amen.